Well, happy Easter. Looks like all the hoity-toity beach spring breakers have come back for Easter, so that's good to have you back. I'm glad you made it back safe and sound here. We've had a wonderful week. Uh, last Sunday was a blizzard, and uh, we had to cancel the second and third service. It's a good thing we did because the power went out in the middle of the second service, and so we would have been stuck doing it like in the old days when they had disciples and kind of spread the gospel throughout the earth and all that. Uh, but today I want to talk about uh, something I talked about back when we were doing our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark last year, or in the course of the last year, and I want to go back to an article that I mentioned then because it seems specifically or especially appropriate to do that uh, again here today. It was a National Geographic magazine that was a year ago, March of 2012. This time of year is Easter. They always, magazines put something Easter-esque, something Jesus-y on the covers because it sells, and certainly National Geographic is, is no different. It was the cover story. It was called The Life, The Journey, I should say, of the Apostles. Now, as these kinds of things go, generally these magazines, usually, not always, sometimes there's an, a wonderful exception to these things, but this magazine is, is more of the typical norm where it's written by an unbeliever and all the authorities they quote are unbelievers talking about things they don't believe. It's amazing they can't come across one intelligent Christian historian. There are many, many who couldn't at least offer some perspective, but nonetheless, even what these non-believing authorities say about the early life of the apostles is still remarkable and worth talking about. Here's what it says, this is what the, even from the standpoint of unbelief, they say this, the apostles suffered, and often gruesomely, many of them, obviously most of them were killed, we know, for spreading their radical views. The 12 Jews preached their new faith across thousands of miles in the first century A.D., changing history. They were unlikely leaders. Most knew more about mending nets than winning converts when Jesus said he would make them fishers of men. Yet, 2,000 years later, all over the world, the apostles are still drawing people in. And then they quoted one historian who said, yeah, that was what he calls the Big Bang in world history. The Big Bang in world history really is not the question, what happened? We know what happened. Something likes of which have not happened in any other time in the history of human race. But the question really is, why? Why did this Big Bang in world history happen? What would cause such a big bang in world history centered upon one person named Jesus. What was it about Jesus that drove these apostles to, as the National Geographic magazine says, preach their faith across thousands of miles, suffer often gruesomely for, for it, and changing history? What made them so unflinchingly relentless in proclaiming a resurrected Jesus through thousands of miles and eventually being killed for it. What would cause that? What would do that? What happened? What makes their testimony, which we read in the New Testament, they are the authors of the New Testament, what makes their testimony so credible about Jesus' miracles, about Jesus' life, about Jesus' teachings, about Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection that makes it so compelling to so many now 2,000 years later. What is it about Jesus that even after 2,000 years, he's still drawing large crowds? I mean, after all, here we are in a packed out 
packed out auditorium that holds 1,500 people, and this is just one of three services. What is it that he's still drawing large crowds, and he's still in the current public discourse 2,000 years later, all across the world? World leaders still quote him. Popular authors and speakers still argue about him. National Geographic magazine, for example, still puts him on their cover. Pop culture still obsesses over him one way or the other, positively or negatively. Every nation on earth still marks the year of their calendar by his birth. Does nobody see the big elephant still in the middle of the room? A few years back even, during the Easter season again, I watched a special news show on ABC News, a uh, special on Jesus and Paul. And it was a presentation that tried to find a plausible explanation for all this. A plausible, the most plausible explanation for what they called the most critical 40 years in world history. The years between 30 AD and 70 AD. The years of Jesus and the apostles, and specifically for this show, the Apostle Paul was the subject of this news program primarily. The report tried to be fair by interviewing scholars all over the spectrum, and I was impressed by that. They were fair. They interviewed scholars that I would have interviewed, from those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the claims of Christ taught throughout the New Testament, all the way to those who have spent their academic lives trying to discredit those claims. But no matter who they interviewed, no matter who talked, I was struck by the one thing on which everyone agreed, and that's this, something big, something incredible happened at the start of those 40 years that would significantly change and affect the entire world for 2,000 years and still climbing. Something big happened, a big bang in world history. So what do you, what do you think it was? Have you thought about it? What seems most plausible to you for the life of the apostles? For the huge big bang in world history that only took 40 years. Something so significant that across the entire globe today, millions and millions of people from probably within every nation on earth will celebrate Easter today as the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection. And here we are. Of course, Christianity's 2,000 year explanation for this big bang is Jesus' resurrection. And I honestly believe that that is by far the most plausible option that explains this Big Bang. And there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' resurrection. We looked at a few earlier out of the Gospel of Luke. We have the New Testament, this eyewitness accounts of the apostles. That's what the New Testament is. Clearly something very big happened. At some point in the Apostle Paul's thinking in life, for example, and so today, I want to look at that. I want to look at that big bang event in the Apostle Paul's life. How this Paul, who was once the greatest human threat to the earliest Christians, he persecuted them, he was responsible, in, at least an accomplice, in killing some of them. He had driven out them from Jerusalem and put them in prison. How did he go from that guy to the Apostle Paul? To the one who would eventually give his very life defending his testimony of the resurrected Jesus. What would cause that? What happened? What do you think it was? Do you think it was 
what Paul says it was, as we read in Acts chapter 26, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, this witness of the apostles that we read. In, in chapter 26, we're about 26 years-ish. Each chapter in Acts is kind of a year-ish from the life of Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 26, some 26 years after Jesus has risen from the dead or died, Paul has been in prison for more than two years now for his unstoppable testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. Catch this. The one who goes from imprisoning those now becomes a prisoner, has been a prisoner for two years. He will eventually be executed because he won't stop witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. And here in Acts chapter 26, he's explaining why he's so relentlessly committed to his testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And here's his own explanation for this revolution in his life. Verse 12, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus. See, by this point, he had, again, driven out or put in prison all the, pretty much all the Christians in Jerusalem. So now he's going somewhere else to find more. So he's going to Damascus, a nearby city. He says, with the authority of the, uh, and commission of the chief priests, they were persecuting the apostles. And he says, at midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now, you can't look at the sun, but this was brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, so this isn't just Paul hallucinating, all of them had fallen to the ground. All of them had been struck to the ground by this incredibly bright, bright, bright light. Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul. Now, that's Paul's Hebrew name, Hebrew dialect. That's his Hebrew name. Paul's his Greek name, Saul's his Hebrew name. Just like the, word, the name Stephen in Hungarian is Ishvan. You know, just different languages say the name differently. So Paul, his Greek name, Saul, his Hebrew name, he's speaking in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Oh. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, non-Jews, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified, this means made holy, by faith in me. Now here's the bottom line Paul is saying, that when Paul encountered the risen Jesus, it wasn't just seeing something that was cool, something that was strange. It caused an authority crisis in his life. That was the change. That was the watershed moment. That was the big bang in his own life, this authority crisis. He says the resurrected Jesus appeared to him shining brighter than the sun, so bright it knocks him and his companions to the ground. And then Paul says the voice of Jesus calls him by name and says something very strange. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
You mean heaven is opened and the deity now speaks into the human condition and you expect him to say something that would be at the top of every academic building in the world throughout history, something profound. But here's what Jesus says instead. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What? I'm sorry, again? What's that mean? Why does Jesus say that? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goad? What's a goad? Well, see, a goad was a sharp point used to prick and to prod stubborn livestock, stubborn animals that were resisting the shepherd, resisting the farmer, whatever. You would prod the animal so that they would go eventually, because it eventually becomes too painful, they would go to where you wanted them to go. They can only resist so long. And the phrase had become actually a cultural idiom. It didn't start here with Jesus. Jesus is saying something that many people have said in their day, referring to futile resistance. It meant that you're only hurting yourself, only bringing pain to yourself by resisting against an irresistibly higher authority because that authority is going to win in the end. You can't resist forever. Jesus is saying something like this, Saul, Saul, why are you on the ground? Here's why. I put you there by my blinding bright light that makes the sun look dull in comparison. Why do you keep resisting me? You're only hurting yourself. You can't defeat me. You can't get away from me. You can't escape me. And you can't even ignore me. You're only hurting yourself when you try. You know I'm right. Now get up off the ground. I'll let you up. I have a much higher purpose for your life than this self-destructive path that you're on. That is an authority crisis. Before Paul saw the gloriously bright light of the resurrected Jesus, he was driven by lesser authorities in his life. Here he mentions the authority of the chief priest. That's what was driving him to Damascus. But when Paul saw the glory of the resurrected Jesus, he also saw the glory of Jesus' absolute authority. Now, of course, that word authority... Not a real popular word in our culture today, right? We have bumper stickers that are old now, but you still see them on those cars that you typically know that this person's going to be driving with bumper stickers that say, question authority. Usually those box kind of cars that are just annoying to look at. <laughs> question authority, along with all these other bumper stickers. Question authority. It's so offensive to us in our culture because we kind of like to think of ourselves as sort of free. I mean, we obey laws and things like that, but we're, 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 we're pretty much autonomous. We think of ourselves as sort of in charge of our own lives. We're free to do what we want to do, to be true to ourselves. Who are you to tell me what to do? Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. I'm going to be my own self and be authentic and true to myself. And that's kind of just the underlying attitude of all of us, one way or another. Nobody has a right to tell me what to do. I'll tell you. And we have road rage and all these things. We got my own authority. I'm a king. But the truth is, you're always dutifully obeying some authority. You're obeying some authority right now. Everybody is. The real problem is not that we refuse to question authority. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The real problem is that nobody seems to question authority near enough. 
the authority that they're so dutifully obeying. If you've seen that movie, Django in Chains, kind of toward the last third of the movie, there's a particularly pathetic character played by Samuel L. Jackson. And he's a particularly pathetic character because he thought he was in charge, but really he was just another slave. If you don't think you live in a dutifully obedient submission, servitude to some authority in your life, think again. Almost everything you do, you do because something else is in control of your life, your life far more than you think. You're obeying authority somewhere, someone more than you possibly realize. Let me just give you a couple examples. Perhaps you're obeying the authority of pleasing people, not just people, not going around pleasing mankind, but there in somehow in your world and your thoughts and your values, there's a certain inside group. There's a certain group that you so, maybe it's more of a, a cultural group or maybe it's a specific group, but that you want to belong to. You want to be liked by. You want to please. You want to be recognized by. You want to be accepted by. You want to be valued by this certain group. And so it affects completely how you act. It can affects how you talk, your opinions when you talk. It affects how you walk. It affects what you wear. It affects what you value. It affects whether or not you felt good about your day or bad about your day, good about yourself or bad about yourself, good about your life or bad about your life. And it's a kind of tyrannical authority that you don't really understand how much it controls you. But if you could see your life from the outside in, you would realize how much it really does control your life every day and every night. Or maybe you obey the authority of living for the next pleasure, the next comfort, the next meal, the next drink, the next party, the next night out with your friends, the next... Uh, vacation, the next purchase, the next entertainment that you're looking forward to. Life is sort of a series of just getting to the next pleasure, getting to the next fun. So really you eat too much, you drink too much, you buy too much, you're in debt, your credit card has had thousands of dollars on it, you've not made any headway on it because you can't stop living beyond your means because there's something that is controlling you that makes you a slave of having to buy too much or maybe you just watch too much entertainment, you're involved in some sort of destructive habit that's eating away at your soul perhaps. And you don't realize how much it's a tyrannical authority that controls you, controls your life every day and night, especially at night. Or maybe you obey the authority of worry. Nobody really wants to be a worrier, so, so to speak. But you can't help it. You obey its authority. The authority of fear, the authority of insecurity, the authority of guilt, depression, 
things like that, worry, fear, insecurity, guilt, depression. They control how you live your life. They control your marriage. They control how you interact with your kids. They control how you interact with other people, how you interact with God. They control how you see life, how you feel about your life, where you think your life is going. You obsess over them and your thoughts and your emotions night and day, especially at night. When you're going to bed, it's a tyrannical authority that has complete control over you. You can't help it. Now, you're not near as free, not near as autonomous as you think. Otherwise, your life would be a lot different than it is now, but it's not. And notice what else Jesus says, or let's just look again what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, hey, Paul, I am sending you, now just notice the language here, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion, that word can also be translated authority, the authority or dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins because of his death on the cross, that they may receive an inheritance because of his resurrection among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That just means we start to live a life that sees Jesus for who he really is. Now, you may or may not really believe in a Satan. I understand that verse is packed with religious cliche. You may not know what you think about Satan, but we can see here that Paul says the resurrected Jesus certainly did believe in Satan, certainly did take the idea of Satan very seriously. It was part of Paul's mission for the reason why Jesus appeared to him. Satan is described in the Bible many ways, but one way you always see him described, and in fact, it's really part of his name. He's described in the Bible as the chief destroyer, the chief deceiver of the world. He brings his darkness upon the world by veiling the light of who God really is. Think about that. If everyone saw God as he really is, this world would be very, very different. He veils, he blinds, he deceives by veiling the light of who God really is. And Jesus seems to be saying that you're either following darkness or light. You're either following the authority of Satan or the authority of God. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And no, no, no doubt, few people would ever choose to follow Satan. Everybody line up over here that wants to follow Satan. Not going to get a lot of people that are going to line up over on that side. And of course, most of those who Jesus says are living in darkness and are following Satan would deny that they are. In fact, I'm sure they'd be most likely offended by him saying that. Somehow Jesus sees things differently. We usually think of those who follow Satan and darkness as those who are satanic, filling their lives with cultic, dark, evil sorcery. Like KU fans. (laughs) But when the Bible describes what it actually looks like to live in darkness, to follow Satan, it's not at all like the satanic images we have in our mind. In fact, it's kind of shocking. Because the Bible talks about living in darkness and the Bible talks about following Satan as following our own self-interests. Always thinking about yourself. Always thinking about you. Life is about you. 
Your day is about you. Your relationships are about you. Your marriage is about you. Your family is about you. Your work is about you. Your money is about you. Your conversations are about you. You, you, you. That is what the Bible says is living in darkness and following Satan. For example, when Satan tempted Eve in Genesis 3, he never said to Eve, follow me. He said, follow you. Live for yourself. You can only trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Nobody's going to look after you except you. See, Satan first comes wearing the mask of our own face. And then he says, follow me. And he blinds us from stopping to realize just how stupid If we just thought about it, how stupid it really is for us to kick against the goads of the glorious, loving, healing, resurrected Jesus. Because see, when you follow you, just you, you by yourself, where are you going? Everybody's going to one place, and that's death. You follow you straight off, the Pied Piper, right to death. What? Wait a minute, oops. I guess I didn't think about that soon enough. Kicking against the goads is really stupid. It's not just hard. It's not just painful. It's not just bringing more and more pain to ourselves, only hurting to ourselves because we're resisting an irresistible authority, but it's just plain stupid like an animal, like an ox. Doing that, following self, living for self instead of the glorious, loving, healing, resurrected Jesus, what? here's a question. Has the reality of Easter, I mean, have you thought about it yet? Has the reality of Easter caused an authority crisis in your life like it did Paul's? It should. I don't know what you think about Easter, but it should. Because Jesus is right. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And we're only hurting ourselves when we keep trying all the way to the end of just sad story and death. Now, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it really be freeing for us to exchange all the tyrannical authorities that are controlling our lives more than we possibly think? Exchange all the tyrannical authorities in our life for the true one? The one who created us, not just the whole universe, but us specifically so that he could have a relationship with us? The one who loves us and died to take upon himself all the condemnation of God for our sin? The one who rose from the dead so that we can too? And be with him in his glory and his beauty and his love and his light and his goodness forever? It's an authority crisis that only you win with him as your authority. Have you thought about what Jesus' resurrection really means for you? Or are you still resisting? A few years ago, uh, on Easter morning, we uh, gave away free copies of a book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Easter. It's a book that he goes into as as a former journalist just investigating the claims of the resurrection of Christ. And it's a book that eventually found its way into a person in our community named Scott Myers. And 
The best way to say it is it caused an incredible authority crisis in Scott's life. Caused him to see things differently, caused him to, 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 to think of his life differently. And I think the best person to tell the story is Scott. So let's just take a moment right now and, and listen to his story. Hi, I'm Scott Myers, and I'm a photographer. Through my 20s and 30s, I really went out of my way to avoid believing in anything that could have possibly put any sort of limitations on my desires. And by the time I was 40, I considered myself an atheist. The biggest way that my worldview showed up in my art was just in the bleakness of a lot of the images. I was really drawn to dark, run-down, broken places. There was really no room for people in my photos. A lot of times there were places where people had been, but people weren't there anymore. They were gone. There was just this sense of brokenness and decay. I spent years photographing flooded houses. I thought it was fit perfectly with what I wanted to photograph. Old historic houses that had been flooded and abandoned. There's just pain in there. You just feel it. I was drawn to that. I never saw myself as being really broken in that sense, other than that was the end of everything. Everything ended that way, and just abandonment and decay and darkness. A world without God is dark and hopeless and meaningless. I mean, you can try to put a layer of human meaning on top of it, but in the end, it, it's all arbitrary. It's all flux and it's all moving and changing and there's nothing to really put your finger on to say this is true except that you will die and that is true. That's the one truth in a world without God is that your life will end and you will suffer before then. It's bleak. It's a, it's a bleak dark way to see the world and I really feel sorry for people that continue to feel that way I mean I know what it was like and it it was just really dark I was not happy in any sense of the word you know I mean it's like I was I was just miserable then I did not want to uh, pass that on to my my kids yes I think something's wrong when you know you can't or you're afraid to explain to your children the way the world works. That was one of the things that motivated me, got me thinking and reading good books and realizing that Christianity is not what I thought it was. My wife uh, brought home a copy of The Case for Easter I started reading it on a whim and was kind of shocked at the impact that it had on me. I realized that I had rejected a cartoon version of Christianity and that I had made up without ever understanding the, the real thing. At that point, I, I needed to understand more, so I started reading the, the four Gospels. Uh, whenever I thought about God, I would have a mental image of Jesus saying, you know I'm right, just right there. 
I didn't have a moment when I accepted Jesus Christ. It was a process over weeks and months. I knew I was changed when I was not only comfortable, but also absolutely compelled to fall on my knees and beg Jesus to have mercy on my wretched soul. One of the obvious things that has changed in my photography after God changing the way that I, I view the world is color. Color just has this amazing potential to express things in a magical way that you just can't do in black and white. I think a lot of my work has gotten uh, very big and, and painterly and a lot of it is, is really just abstract color and natural patterns and light. A lot of the subject matter for the color tends to be nature photographed in a way that kind of shows this orderly madeness of creation, how it's not randomness and it's not chaos. There is an order to it. The biggest, most dramatic change that I've seen in my photography is my interest in photographing people. I never wanted to do that before, and now that's all I want to do. The technical part of it isn't what it's about. It's about that interaction with other people. The only way that you can ever get somebody to look and give you an honest expression in a photograph is they have to open up and they have to let down their mask and they have to relax and, and trust me. And the only way that they're going to do that is if I do the same thing first. I never wanted that in the past. I really, really did not want that. Because it was fear. I mean, it was it was fear that of interacting with other people that kept me from doing it. I mean, God has just totally changed my heart on it to where that's what I want to do. It's, it's almost the exact opposite of what I was doing before. And that really kind of coincides with a growing understanding of the Gospels and just kind of developing faith and trust in, in God. The world without God is like you're down in this dank basement, this dungeon, and if you don't know that the sun is out there, <laughs> or you deny that the sun is out there, you still have a longing for something other than the darkness. God wants to take you out of that, put you in the sun. And that's Scott's story. That's his authority crisis that he talks about and how it changes everything. Maybe, maybe you're open-minded enough to wrestle with the idea that you might be ready for an authority crisis of your own. And maybe you're somebody who's considered yourself a Christian all your life or a Christian for a long time, but you really haven't had the authority crisis of, of wrestling with what the resurrection really means for you. Or maybe you're somebody that, you know, you're... Your only view of Christianity has been like Scott's, more of a cartoon, more of a caricature that you really, none of us would want to have anything to do with if it was like that. Maybe it's not like that. Maybe it's something altogether different. And if you think you might benefit from the same book that Scott did, The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel, we have those available today. You can go ahead and take one for yourself if you want to at least look into a good intellectual argument of why it's plausible to believe in the resurrection of Christ and be challenged by it, I encourage you to pick up a copy. Now, if you're somebody who's been a Christian for a long time, you don't really need that book, you just want to have another book on your shelf, don't take that book today. Uh, we'll have that book available other times, but we want to make sure there's enough uh, for others.
Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, if you're real, if Jesus is real, Lord Jesus, if you're real, we pray that you would cause an authority crisis in all of our lives to one degree or another, that we would learn to see the darkness for what it is and hate it and want the light and love it. That we would understand that self is only a grave in the end and that we would long for the beauty and the glory, the goodness and the love, the wisdom of the resurrected Jesus, bright in beauty and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.